Welcome to Building the Future. I'm your host, Kevin Hark. You can check out new episodes of the show every Tuesday and Thursday at 2 p.m. If you missed an episode or want to get more information about the show, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com. SoupX, the Startup Expo, North America's premier startup conference, is March 6th and 7th, 2017, in sunny Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Affordably priced, SoupX is a two-day international conference featuring workshops, panels, speeches, a $50,000 startup competition, and over 100 exhibitors. For more information, go to sup-x.org. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Jigar Shah. He's the co-founder at Generate Capital, Inc., Jigar, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on the show. You guys are you're doing some interesting things. Um, but before we kind of maybe get into um, Generate Capital, let's get to know you a little bit better and start off with where you grew up. Sure. So you were where where were you born and raised? I was born in India, but came over when I was very young okay. and grew up in rural Illinois, a town called Sterling, Illinois. Okay. And and then, okay, so obviously, like, your parents came over and, and you grew up in America. Um, what kind of got What kind of got you passionate about kind of going into university and, you know, kind of getting into the renewable energy space? Was there something in a kid that defined well, that, or? It, there was, you know, when when I was growing up, um, that was still back in the days where the Southwestern Company would train, you know, college students to like go door to door and sell books and right. all that stuff. And my dad was just a real sucker for that stuff. So, you know, every time a college student come by, you know, there was a reliable buyer. Uh, sure. or it's encyclopedias or whatever it was. <laughs> and great. one time there was a there was a there was a guy that came by and it was sort of the sort of how how things work books. Sure. And honestly they were just a bunch of books with pictures, right? I mean there may have been like twenty five pages per book. Sure. And it was sort of like how the economy works, how electricity works, how the water system works, right, et cetera. And you know, like at that point I was just tired of my dad buying these books and I didn't want to read them. And so, you know, so I don't think I read them for four years. And then when I turned 15 or 16, I remember looking at them on the shelf and going, ah, oh, you know, let me just flip through them. And one of them was about electricity. Okay. And it was just like two pages, you know, here's how coal works. Here's how solar works. Here's how wind works. Here's how nuclear works. And, you know, when you're a kid at 16, if every single subject has two pages associated with it, you just assume that all of those technologies are equal. Sure. That's right? great. And yeah. so I looked at them all and I said, well, coal is the same as solar, is the same as wind, is the same as nuclear, is the same as natural gas, and or hydro. And, and I just, you know, I didn't know any better. And so I was like, wow, this solar stuff just seems so cool. Sure. And uh, so I got bitten by the bug. I started talking to high school teachers and saying, hey, what, what does this mean? And they said, well, you should probably be an engineer. And so I went to college and got my engineering degree and at the University of Illinois, and then, you know, started working in the renewable energy industry. Okay, so you you got out, you were working for, for some pretty big-name um, companies in, in the space, correct? I got there, yeah. I mean, when I first graduated, I went took a job for a startup wind company in Vermont called Atlantic Orient Corporation. Um, and it was just me and the founder, basically, every day. Right. And... Um, 
you know, and after not getting paid for like six months, I had to get a job at a grocery store, stocking shelves to, to like make ends meet. Um, and then I, you know, went to go work for a consulting company in, um, DC called energetics, which, uh, you know, supported the department of energy. Sure. Um, and after that job, I got into BP solar, right. uh, which is part of BP, the oil group. And that's probably what you're referring to. And that was an amazing experience just learning about management and, and, uh, you know, the way companies work. Sure. No, that's great. And then you also got, um, an MBA as well. Did you actually quit to go back and get that or were you doing that kind of part-time or, or how did no, you? No, I did it part-time. Yeah. Okay. It was an evening thing. And it was when I was working at Energetics. I mean, Energetics was a real sort of nine to five type job. Okay. And, uh, so it was actually, you know, perfect for me because I was able to do my MBA at night and study and do all those things, but you know, I didn't have a job that was super demanding. Sure. So you, you did this, you were working at BP and then you, you've worked at a kind of a, a bunch of companies kind of in the renewable space. How did you decide to kind of just leave that industry and kind of co-found, um, generate capital? Well, you know, when I went, you know, I had always had an entrepreneurial bug. My dad is a physician, but he started, you know, two of his own practices. And so I saw how that, you know, experience went and it was, you know, pretty exciting. And, and so I, I already wanted to start my own business and, and I wrote a business plan for Son Edison, um, in, in business school okay. and, you know, I got a good grade on it and all that stuff. And then when I left BP, so when I was at BP solar, I tried to sell BP on the idea and they said, well, you know, this looks great, but it's not something we're going to do. Um, and so I finally, you know, left BP to start Sun Edison and, you know, and that went extraordinarily well. I made a lot of money and was able to sell that company in 2009 and, uh, you know, and then joined, um, um, the Carbon War Room, yeah. um, which was a nonprofit with Richard Branson. And, you know, the Sun, Sun Edison, basically, like, I, you know, I just became a expert in all things solar. You know, there wasn't anything in the solar industry that I didn't have some sort of, like, my fingers in the pot on. And, and when I went to the Carbon War Room, I was like, wait, wait a second. I mean, this is so much bigger than solar. You got electric vehicles, you got other electricity technologies, you got you know, biomass and agriculture and industrial emissions and efficiency and, you know, so many different sectors that you can make a lot of money. Sure. You know, and we were helping them out with the nonprofit side and helping all these entrepreneurs be successful. But when I left Carbon Morton, what I realized was the financing business model innovation that I perfected at Sun Edison was really needed for all of these other sectors. Sure. And so that's what that's how Generate Capital was born, was we just, we realized that there really was no financial institution whose job it, it was to really help a lot of these, these renewable energy industries get their first partner. Right. So, what, like, did you put in your own kind of cash that came out of the sale of uh, Sun Edison, or how did you guys kind of build up the fund? Yeah, so in 2009, when I sold Sun Edison, I, you know, you can imagine it was big news. I started getting hit up by people all the time for money. Sure. And I realized early on, like, I just did not know what I was doing on investing in companies. Okay. You know, even though I'd started my own company and raised a bunch of money for it, investing in companies and helping them grow that company, that was not my forte. 
Okay. Um, it was really project finance that was my forte, right? Investing in their projects. So I'll give you an example. There's a company that came to me that said, hey, you know, we've figured out how to do what you did in Sun Edison in the solar hot water industry. Right. You know, can you angel invest in me? And I said, well, you know, like, I, don't, I just don't know, know how to do that. But do you have your first two customers? And they said, yeah, you know, I got my first three customers, George Washington University and a few other folks. So I said, well, look, I'll just buy those projects. You know, because you need you need to get a loan anyway to fund those projects. Oh, interesting. Okay. So I'll so I'll just fund those projects because I get that. I know how the contract's supposed to look. I'm happy to read it all and give you comments and all that stuff. And and so you know, I I just kept doing those kinds of deals. A couple hundred thousand dollars here, five hundred thousand dollars there. And then suddenly, you know, we had a twenty-two million dollar portfolio of projects um, that wasn't just my money. It was. Um, a friend of mine, Bernie Zarin, joined me. We created a fund to own all these projects and, and manage them. And then, then my parents decided to invest a little bit, and my uncle and my aunt, and you know, and his people he knew. And so suddenly, we had eighty investors um, in this fund with twenty-two million dollars capital. That's amazing. I, I love that. And and it sounds like you kind of just learned how to be an investor, kind of just doing it, really. That's right. You know, we just said, look, you know, I know this project finance stuff. He had done the same thing in his life with landfill gas. Okay. And so, you know, we said, look, let's just do this and let's, you know, like figure out whether we can do it. And, and we did great. And then, you know, reconnected with my partners at Generate Capital. Scott Jacobs and I knew each other for years um, at, when he was at McKinsey. And then, um, and then Matan Friedman was also good friends with Scott. And so the three of us uh, got together. I met him through Scott and, and said, hey, you know, this thing that you're doing could easily be a real business. And Matan was doing something similar, frankly, with his own money in Israel. Okay. And uh, and Scott Jacobs was doing it with with uh, with money that he got from a couple of high net worth individuals in San Francisco, as well. So all three of us came up with the idea independently of each other. That's awesome. And we we're like, hey, why don't we just do it together? You know. Sure. But you're, are you in New York and kind of travel back between San Francisco or did you move to San Francisco? Yeah, exactly. Well, I was in New York and Scott was in San Francisco and Matan was in Israel. And so Matan already agreed to move back to the U.S. But, gotcha. uh, you know, Scott and I had a tug of war as to whether we were going to put generate in San Francisco or in New York. And, uh, you know, I drew the short straw. So the Company's based in San Francisco, and I'm the guy that's commuting back and forth. Got you. So, how much time do you spend in San Francisco in a month, or is it like kind of maybe quarterly compared? And then, obviously, you're you're in New York most of the time. But how much time do you spend in San Francisco? Just out of curiosity. Yeah. So, you know, when we first started, it was a lot. You know, um, when we first started the company, I was there um, probably half the time, and then. Um, and then what I realized was actually way more people that were looking for project finance were coming through New York than, than were coming through San Francisco. Really? Why, why, why is that out of curiosity? Well, because San Francisco, I think, is more of a mecca for corporate financing, right, for venture capital. Right. Where New York has a lot more of the debt providers and the banks and the folks who look at these sort of projects. Okay. Right. Because projects are discrete, right? So sure. you can invest in a discrete project, and if the company goes out of business that built it, you're still going to make your money as long as the customer that it's serving is still paying up right. for the services. Sure. Right? And so, so that conservative industry was more New York-based. 
and the venture capital industry, which is more sort of go-go, is in uh, San Francisco. So, so it turned out that actually many, many, many entrepreneurs were coming through New York, so I was having a lot of one-on-one FaceTime in New York with them. That's great. So we kind of touched yeah. on – sorry, go ahead. No, and so then slowly it became sort of 20% San Francisco, 80% New York. Got you. Okay, no, that makes sense. So we, we kind of touched on obviously what generate capital, kind of the companies that you guys invest in, but do you maybe want to dive a little bit deeper and kind of cover the exact things that you guys are looking to invest in? Sure. I mean, you know, broadly speaking, we want to invest in resource efficiency solutions. Okay. Right? So, so all of the technologies we invest in, these projects, they save the customer money. Okay. Right? So if you were to come to me and say, hey, Jigger, you know, like, my roof just broke. I'd like to get a new roof. We're not going to fund that. Gotcha. Right? That's just, you got to go to a bank and you just got to get money and you got to do that. Right? But if you said, hey, you know, like, there's this guy who's selling me this air conditioning system that's super duper cool and innovative, but I just don't, you know, I just don't trust him and I just don't know if I want to pay cash for it. Um, but I'll sign a 15 year contract to buy cooling services from it. Right. Interesting. Then we would own the air conditioning. You would pay us for cooling services from it. And when you do a cooling services contract, that means that, that it's not your responsibility to keep the thing fixed. And running, I got right? you. it's my responsibility as the owner with you know the the manufacturer, right? And so it's sort of like you're a renter. So you know when you when you're in a rental, if the if the toilet stops working, you just call some guy to say, hey, fix the toilet. I got right? you. Interesting. Um, so so yeah, so that's what we do. Whether it's energy efficiency or you know, there's a company that we were looking at that was doing. Um, water um, irrigation and, you know, figured out how to use 50% less water for farmers using their technology. And so we're looking at that. So, you know, fuel cells, um, battery storage, there's just tons and tons of sectors that are ready for prime time. Sure. And do you guys kind of just do investments inside of the United States or do you kind of do outside of uh, the United States or, or it doesn't really matter just if it's a good idea and makes sense for you guys, you'll, you guys will invest in it. Yeah. I mean, you know, we're focused on the U S right now. Um, mostly just because you can imagine that when you do something like this, uh, laws matter. Sure. Right. So the question is, what are my rights right under this contract? Cause you know, a customer signs the contracts, but three years from now, if they say, well, you, I don't want to honor it. Right? When you do that deal in India, it's like a seven year court case. I got you. Right? Yeah. Whereas here, right, you know, there's established law, I can immediately say, hey, look, you sign this contract, I can go to small claims court and get a judgment in, you know, two months. I got you. Okay. No, that right? makes a lot of so, sense. So, so you got to be, you know, you got to be careful about, you know, like stretching yourself a little too far. Sure. And, I, like you, you mentioned kind of law and obviously like Trump's going to be president. Does his kind of um, stance on and I don't want to get like too political, but like his potential stance on kind of renewable energy and um, the like climate change. Could that potentially affect you guys or, or not really? Or is it still kind of an unknown? Well, they're two different things, right? OK. So on the one hand, renewable energy today is about 50% cheaper than coal power. 
Sure. Right? Yep. So you don't have to be a green hippie to want to go solar and wind. You just have to want cheap stuff. Sure. Well, even like if right? you... And so, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. So a lot of governors and state legislators and public service commissioners are putting pressure on their utility companies to buy solar and wind, not because it's good for the environment, but because it's cheaper. I got you. Yeah. Right? Like, and so... Fair. Yeah, so someone like the president isn't going to step in and tell governors, well, you got to buy more expensive coal power. Sure. No, that makes sense. And even like if you go like, I think Tesla's the perfect case or another good case to that is like if you do the breakdown of how much money you save on like maintenance and gas over the life of buying a Tesla, you actually, it's actually cheaper. So I get it's kind of like loosely maybe related to that, but it's the same kind of concept, right? That you can like save money in the long yeah, term. Yeah, we only we only fund stuff that saves people money. Okay, I got you. Right. So if 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 it doesn't save the customer money, then we don't get involved, right? And so so to me, that's market based, right? And that's market based stuff. Now you can say, well, there's a federal tax credit for solar and wind, or there's local incentives and rebates and all that stuff. But look, I mean, you know, we're investors. We have to do our due diligence. If we think that those tax credits are going to go away, well, we're going to stop funding that sector. Sure. But Got there's you. 20 other sectors that are ready to go that either has an incentive program at the local level or doesn't have an incentive program at all because you don't need it. Got you. No, right? that, The numbers just work. That makes sense. So at what point... How early or late in a like at what point do you usually typically invest in a company where it's just like an idea on a napkin or do they need a prototype or kind of at what stage do you actually No, we definitely want, you know, companies that don't have any technology risk. Okay. Right. So the technologies that we're funding, I mean, these things have already been proven. Gotcha. Now they may be underappreciated. Right. So we did a bunch of uh, financing for plug power. Um, and their fuel cells. Okay. Now, you know, a lot of investors hear fuel cells and they run for the hills. Yeah. But we looked at it and we said, look, you know, this technology is from 1998. So it's been around for 18 years. It's got a good track record. Certainly it didn't work that well when it was first put in the field, but it got better every year. And now, you know, Walmart's been using these technologies for, I don't know, something like four years and they're in their distribution center. They've been testing them since 2006. Really? And so we got comfortable that the technologists were working. Right? And I remember after we did the investment, I went to a couple of bank friends of mine, said, hey, would you provide us with some debt on these deals? They said, oh, we had a bad experience in 2002 on fuel cells. We'll never touch them again. Interesting. Right? And so, so that's why, you know, but that's why we make such good returns, right? Because... When some technology is out of favor, you know, we're very matter-of-fact about it. We look at it and say, well, is it out of favor for a reason? Or is it out of favor just because folks didn't, you know, really look at the data? Sure. It, it seems like you guys have an, a kind of an almost different approach to investing in companies. Yeah, you guys are doing energy stuff. But just from, like, I talked to investors, you know, and I've had a bunch on the show over, you know, the last, like, year or so. And it seems... To me, at least, you guys kind of have a very different approach to kind of investing. It's almost more practical. Do you, do you, would you say oh, that's yeah. accurate? I mean, we're, yeah, I mean, like, we're value investors, right? I mean, mm-hmm. there's no, like, there's, there's no um, pop in the stock for us, right? I gotcha. mean, we, 
we're investing in a contract, right? And so if that contract works, then we make good money. If it doesn't work, we lose money. But like, but we're not, you know, like there's no way for us to make a 10 X return on our investments. Got you. Right. I mean, we're making slow and steady wins a race kind of investments. And in the end, what we're really doing is distributed infrastructure. Sure. Right. And so we're looking at making these investments for 20, 30 years and making a nice solid return every year. Makes a lot of sense, right? Like, because I guess a lot of people that I have on the show are, are more like the big Silicon Valley, like tech based kind of thing that they're hoping to, you know, put in a couple mil and make a billion dollars kind of thing, right? And, you know, right. trying to find a unicorn in, in that and trying to get a billion dollars is, well, it's it's like playing the Powerball, right? Like, you, I, there's a chance, but well, it's not you know, very good. I mean, yeah, I mean, look, some of us, some of us still believe in Santa Claus and the Tooth Fairy and unicorns, and others of us actually grew up. Sure. But, and I, I like that about what you guys do, right? Because I, I think more and more people need to have that same focus, especially when they're investing, because I've, I've had other investors on the show too that kind of mentioned like they've, they, you know, sold the company for some money. They start angel investing and they've lost a lot of money because they just, they don't really get it, I guess, for lack of a better term, right? Well, no, that's right. I mean, just because you made a lot of money as an entrepreneur, as I did, I mean, it doesn't mean you know anything. I mean, that's the crazy thing about rich people, right? It's amazing how many rich people, like, start explaining education to you and, you know, and, like, you know, religion and all sorts of stuff. I'm like, what do you know? <laughs> I mean, just sure? because you made a bunch of money and whatever doesn't mean you're an expert in everything. And, look, I mean, I learned early on I wasn't an expert in everything, and I just stuck to my knitting. I'm really good at project finance, and it's esoteric and weird, but, you know, it's a trillion-dollar opportunity, so... I don't think I'll lack for deal flow for a long time. And, um, you know, and the other thing is that, like, it makes my investors really good amount of money. Like, my parents, you know, they didn't retire with $50 million. They retired with a good amount, but they're accredited investors. They went to Prudential, and Prudential said, yeah, we can get you an annuity, and we'll give you 3% returns for life, guaranteed. I got you. And they were like, 3% returns for life? That's craziness. Sure. Right? They looked at what I was doing and said, Junior, we understand this stuff. Like you're actually, you know, you're buying a piece of equipment, you're having a customer use it that really needs it, and that customer is paying you for that use. Sure. That makes sense to us. We'll invest alongside you in that stuff. And, you know, now they're making seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven percent returns, depending on the investment, for the next twenty years. And they're saying, you know that's way better than an annuity and potential. Sure. Right, and when you cross-collateralize it in a company like ours, right, so now if you invest and generate at the corporate level, then all, you know, of the hundreds of assets that we own are all mixed into the same pool, right? So five of those assets underperform, both made up by all the rest of the projects are doing just fine. So, you know, I, I, just, I, I just think that the slow and steady wins the race is how you know, at least I was taught how to invest, you know, like I wasn't taught that, you know, you make big pops of money and, uh, and, uh, then retire. It's more like, Hey, you know, like try to make your seven, eight, nine percent returns every year for 30 years. Sure. No, that, that's really good advice. But I, I am curious, was there one thing or a couple of things that you wish you would have known when you started investing in companies that you had to learn over time? 
Yeah, you know, the thing is, is that when you first angel invest, right? Yeah. You you think that it's basically you and the entrepreneur, okay. right? The entrepreneur has a business plan. They say they need $200,000 to to realize it and test it and do all the stuff and bring the product to market. And you're like, great, you know, here's 50,000 bucks and here's three friends who are going to put in 50,000 bucks. And now you get $200,000 Like, go ahead and do it. Right. But then what happens is the company hits it out of the park. They do a great job. They like have, um, you know, a bunch of trial customers. The customers love the product and they're like, Oh, you know, now we need to raise $1.2 million for, you know, like getting certified and all the, you know, professionalization that we have to do, right? Sure. And you look around and you say, you know what? I don't have $1.2 million to give you. Right. Right? So now your $50,000 investment's at risk because you don't have $1.2 million to help him get to the next level. Sure. And you call up all the people that invest in, in your old company, Sun Edison, and they're like, well, we're solar investors, Jigger. Like, we don't invest in whatever it is that you just invested in. So now your Rolodex is only four people deep. And so you end up failing to help the guy raise $1.2 million. And he doesn't know anybody either because he's, you know, or she's like, you know, an expert in whatever they started the company. Sure. No, right. That, and so now yeah. suddenly you've lost all your money because you don't know how to help them raise the next round. Interesting. Right. And so like, like that, I mean, that's, that was one of the biggest reasons I left angel investing is I was like, you know, like, and, and it's also not that interesting to me, like me hobnobbing with rich people all day so that I have someone else to turn to when my angel investor investment needs more capital is not how I want to spend my time. Fair. Interesting. Yeah, that's, that's actually quite fascinating. You, you got me thinking about a bunch of things there because it's a totally different approach to a lot of people, uh, a lot of, especially angel investors, right? And I, I love that you're, you're basically making this like a real, real thing, right? And it's something you enjoy, right? And you, and you're passionate about it. Yeah. Oh my God. It's great. You know, you want to wake up early every day. You want to like, you know, get involved and you're, you're hungry to do stuff and it's, it's great. Right. And it's because it's slow and steady wins the race. If my wife says, Hey, you know, let's go on vacation for a week. I can do that. I just stop meeting entrepreneurs and stop making new investments for a week. And then we like, sure. you know, now generate a real company. We got 18 full-time staff now. And so we're you know, continuing to work when I'm on vacation. But, but the good thing is that, you know, it's, a, it's something you can really, you know, like do and make money at, um, you know, like, like uh, uh, Warren Buffett has that great line where he says, you know, like, True success is when you're making money while you sleep. Totally. Right? And yep. I'm making money while I sleep, you know? Like, I mean, <laughs> it's great, you know? I mean, it's, 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 it's something that I think we all used to do. It just wasn't called this. Right. You know, when, you know, the 1930s or 40s or 50s, if somebody needed something, you pass the hat around the neighborhood and, you know, you, you yeah. help them get what they needed and then, you know, everyone got paid back. And, and um, you know, now I just don't think people do that anymore. No, I yeah, I totally agree. I I love the approach. Um, but I'm I'm curious. You're you're an auth, also an author. You wrote a book, correct? Yeah. So it, it was called Creating Climate Wealth. Mm-hmm. So what? Obviously, like what? Let's let's talk about the book and what, why did you decide to write a book? 
Well, you know, the, the funny thing is, is in the solar industry specifically, right, which is where I'm known from, um, you know, we've probably deployed about a trillion dollars in the solar industry now wow. last, since, I, since I started Sun Edison. Sure, that's amazing. And um, 91% or something of that money, 95% of that money, was all in project finance. Okay. Right? These are all insurance companies, banks, pension com- pension funds that are investing into solar projects to give them a nice stable return for the next 20 years. Got you. And, you know, then a couple percentage points are used for venture capital and people going public and all that stuff, right? Yep. But it was shocking to me how nobody knew that. Every single person you talk to is like, yeah, you know, I'm an investor in solar. Oh, what company did you invest in? Did you get in the early round, later round? Did you go public? Did you make an IPO? Did you make 10X? I was like, no, I own the solar system on St. Albans Church. Okay, you interesting. Know? And, and it was just shocking to me how, like, the solar industry is so big and so successful, and most of the money is in project finance, and no one knew about it. So I wrote this book called Creating Climate Wealth, and the central tenet to it is that, is that this is the largest wealth creation opportunity of our time. Sure. Right? When, you, when, when you've got a trillion dollars going to work, you know the number one job that was created in the country since the, the financial crisis in 2008 has been, you know, in the solar industry. Really? I didn't know that at all. Right. Actually. I mean, right. I mean, and so, so that's what the book is about, right? The book is basically about, you know, like how the solar industry really works, right? It's really a project finance industry, not just solar, but wind and electric vehicles. I mean, electric vehicles, most of the money going to electric vehicles are lease payments. People are leasing their vehicles. Oh, interesting. Right? And so the same is true for, you know, like energy efficiency for homes or all these other things. It's just amazing to me how everyone's so obsessed with companies, but they're not obsessed with, you know, exactly how this sales process works and how the money flows and who's making money where and how and what. And it's great. I mean, the book has done really well, and there's now like 25 classes around the world that get taught, you know, where students are getting taught this book. And, wow. you know, I was talking to the professors, and they said, you know, Jared, honestly, you're the only person who's written a book about this. Every other person has written a book about a company. No one's actually written a book about where 90-plus percent of all the money goes. That's amazing. So, No, that's great, man. So you, you're also part of a podcast, Energy Gang, correct? Yeah, it's how, fun. How did you get involved with that? And tell me about the podcast. Well, you know, when you're a busy sort of executive that's sort of, you know, getting around the world, you know, you find that you sort of get bored, right? I mean, you've sure. watched all the movies in the back of the video and you've read <laughs> as many reports as you're going to read on, on your laptop. And, um, and so at some point you start listening to the podcast. Sure. And, and I got addicted to this one called the Slate Political Gab Fest. I don't know if you've heard of that one. Yeah, yeah. But I think it's one of the top 10 podcasts on politics or whatever. And, um, and I just love the format, right? You know, there's John Dickerson, who now is the head of CBS this morning, uh, uh, the CB- CBS sort of political show. And then David Plotz, who used to run Slate, and then Emily Bazelon, who is a lawyer, and the banter and the stuff. And I was realizing that, you know, that's one of the problems with the renewable energy industry, right? You get these very sort of antiseptic sort of stories, right? Somebody's press release saying, solar industry is sold 
15,000 megawatts of equipment this year and $35 billion and all this other stuff, right? Yep. But there's no story behind the story. Right. Right? So I was pitching, uh, you know, Stephen Lacey, who's now the, you know, the, the editor-in-chief over at, uh, at uh, Green Tech Media. Yeah. And he said, yeah, you're absolutely right. So then we got, you know, Catherine Hamilton, who's extraordinary. And she's an expert in, you know, lobbying and, and getting stuff done for folks in D.C., um, so you have the entrepreneur with me and the lobbyist and her and then the reporter with him. That's amazing. And we just get behind. The, it's great. We get underneath the story where it's like, okay, Tesla did this. Well, why did they do that? And what, what does this mean? And all this other stuff. And, and it's great. We've got, you know, like just a great loyal listener base and they give us tons of great questions and feedback. And so it's a lot of fun. Sure. And, and where can people get more information about the podcast? Well, so you certainly can go to Green Tech Media, but it's also available on every podcast device, so iTunes or Stitcher or, you know, I think even NPR One now carries the podcast. So um, it's it's pretty cool. We're we're getting, I think we're up to about 20,000 or 21,000 listeners now for that particular, for some of our episodes. And, um, and, you know, you can imagine an industry of like four or 500,000 people, you know, like I was talking to one of my friends who's an executive at Tesla and he said he just makes it mandatory listening for all of his employees, and um, that's amazing. So it's, it, it, it's 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 good, you know, when you're making an impact like that. And and I I, I talked to a lot of college students who want to join our industry who uh, who were like, yeah, you know, I learned a ton from that podcast, and so it makes you feel good. Sure, that's amazing. So you've had obviously tons of success, and you you continue to have great success. And you wrote a book, and you're doing a podcast. What what's next for you? Well, I mean, this is going to take me a lifetime, you sure. know, I mean, that's the beauty of this, right? Is that, you know, like just this last week, we did a deal in, uh, in fuel cells, right? Okay. And last year we did a deal in battery storage and, you know, we just did a deal in anaerobic digesters. I mean, I am drinking from a fire hose, right? I mean, who would have thought that I was going to be on dairy farms, you know, investing in anaerobic digesters to convert manure and food waste into natural gas? Sure. Right. I mean, it's just, it's extraordinary. Every time I turn around, someone says, Hey, I got this new idea and it's pretty amazing. And it's using this old school technology in a different way. And so, I mean, every day I wake up and I talk to people who are so exciting. That's awesome. I mean, these are people who have basically bet their whole lives on whatever their entrepreneurial venture is. And I get a chance to help them be successful. Right. I mean, there's nothing better than that. Sure. No, that's great. Is there is there any one thing that you'd still like to accomplish that you're kind of working towards, though? Well, everything goes, everything is goes within generate, right? Like, if you think about like anaerobic digesters, right, which sure. we're funding now, you know, the state of California has mandated that you know we try to to manage climate emissions, right? right. One of the largest forms of climate emissions are methane coming off of manure from sure. dairy cows, right? And so now, instead of all that methane belching into the to the air, we're actually converting it into renewable natural gas, right? And that's because, you know, we are following legislation and helping pass legislation in some of those areas. So, right, so all of my political and legislative goals are also supporting Generate. Interesting. Right, I mean, yeah. all of the educational work that I do on Energy Gang podcast or all of the, you know, LinkedIn followers I have and all the, the content I'm writing there, right? It's all to educate future Generate Capital 
clients. Sure. Right? <laughs> like yeah, we're no, totally. Go out and change the world, right? And pretty much every financing that we've ever done within Generate is being replicated by people in India and Myanmar and South Africa and Brazil. It's great, right? I mean, it's not our money that's going into those projects, but they're taking our intellectual property and our sort of like way in which we structured a deal and they're saying, hey, this is going to work in our country. That's amazing. And though. so we're inspiring people around the world to do that stuff. Yeah, it's it's so great. So everything I possibly wanted to do, whether it's, you know, affect global markets or figure out what, you know, we can do to bring about world peace. I mean, we've got 2 billion people around the world who don't have access to modern electricity. Sure. Which right? is so I mean, crazy to me, right? They're all... Yeah, they're all getting electricity because of our model. Yeah, that's amazing. Right, because of project finance, right? I mean, basically, there are people that have invented ways of doing micropayments on telephones. Sure. So now people are getting free solar systems, and then they just pay, you know, five to ten cents a day for those systems on their phone. That's amazing. It's, it's awesome, right? It all came out of the project finance work that I was doing at Sun Edison, and then, you know, they layered on technology and layered on their own special thoughts. And, and now, you know, this is fantastic. And so I go around the world and I'm like, wow, that, that's what happened with that, like, small, dinky innovation we made 13 years ago or the stuff that we did at Generate. Like, you read this article and you got inspired to do that. Like, like it's, it doesn't matter what corner of the globe or what corner of the United States we're in. Like we're making a huge impact in the lives of people, which is fantastic. Sure. No, that that's great, man. But sadly, we're kind kind of running out of time. So maybe let's close the show with where people can get more information about yourself, generate the book and the podcast. Well, look, I mean, you know, generatecapital.com is where you can get all of those things. And, um, and it's, you know, look, it's a load, it's loads of fun. I have to say, like, it's, it's one of those things where just, you know, producing the podcast, producing the content, you know, like helping entrepreneurs get money. It's a ton of fun. And so, I mean, my biggest piece of advice to people is, you know, if you can position yourself to have lots of fun every day, you can't go wrong. Sure, man. That's great. That's a great way to end it. So I really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy day to be on the show and, I look forward to keeping in touch with you and, you know, have a good rest of your day. That's great. Thanks so much. All right. Thanks, man. We'll talk soon. Yep. Okay. Bye. Thanks for listening. The music for the show is done by Electric Mantra. You can check them out at electricmantra.com and keep them in the future.